Welcome. You're now listening to Dirty Feet. Bonjour, oui, vous êtes sur les ondes des pieds sales, a.k.a. Dirty Feet podcast on No More Radio. And hosted by... Joanny Farrand. J.D. Papillon. Alison Burns. Stay tuned, we're going to move you... We have a very special 40th episode of Dirty Feet here. We're actually celebrating not only our 40th episode, but also the 80th year of uh, life for Elizabeth Langley, who just celebrated her 80th birthday and has so graciously agreed to join us in studio to talk about her incredible career and uh, and hopefully some, some insights into this creative mind. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Now, if you haven't heard the name Elizabeth Langley before, we'll forgive that and we'll uh, inform you about Elizabeth herself. She, uh, you, she was born in Australia as you may be able to tell by her accent, her lovely accent. And she's uh, spent, can I say, 60 years performing and dancing? Oh, about that. About that. Amazing. And she also founded the Contemporary Dance Department here at uh, Concordia in Montreal. And so many more things. Uh, currently, you're, you're continuing to work as a dramaturge and uh, a mentor. Are you also still creating and dancing? I'm creating, but I don't call it dancing anymore in my performance work. Because when, when people would ask me, uh, are you still dancing, Elizabeth? And I would say yes. A strange expression would pass over their faces. So now I call it physical theater. And, uh, but it's that kind of physical theater that can only be done by a dancer. But I now use text and what, whatever I like. Wonderful. Can we talk uh, about your early career? Uh, did you start your training in Australia? Well, I think I started to train myself before I started to be publicly trained in a studio. I was uh, the fourth child of a very creative bazaar uh, for Australian children. And by the time I came along, my parents were very tired, and we were literally allowed to create in any way we liked. It didn't matter whether it made noise or it smelled bad or we <laughs> dug up the garden or whatever. So my thing, and I didn't even know the word improvisation, and I definitely couldn't have spelt it. My thing was to go into the front room and to put on music and to do my thing, which was literally interpreting the music with my body. And uh, I started doing that seriously a few hours every day at about the age of seven. And, of course, my father was a champion social dancer, and my aunts, my absolutely renegade aunts, had performed in vaudeville in Australia when it was, like, only done by scarlet women. So I come from a pretty wild background. So I did my thing for many years, every day, every day, every day. And then one lucky day in my life, uh, my brother came home with a girlfriend, and she said to me, oh, I go to a studio where they do that. Now, the idea that there was a group of people somewhere who were improvising together just threw me into a tailspin. So my mother took me to the studio, and I remember everything I saw in that first class. Um, exercises, some bar work, some floor work, some crossing the floor, and improvisation in this with this group of people. So within about, um, I think, a month, I was there like every day. And they became my family. And from I started teaching at that particular studio in 1953, 
my apprenticeship went from 1953 to 1960. And, you know, people complain these days about uh, having to teach a few classes a week. I, my apprenticeship for seven years was to teach 45 classes a week, traveling <laughs> 250 miles, uh, choreographing, sewing my own costumes, folding uh, programs, cleaning toilets, hammering nails in on stage floors. And that was my apprenticeship. And it made me tough. But it also made me determined to go on. So do you want the next chapter now? Yes, please. <laughs> well, I have miraculous things happening in my life. Uh, in 1960, I fortunately met the musicians that were touring Australia uh, with Harry Belafonte. And one of them and I became very connected, we'll say that, in adverted commas. So eventually, Harry Belafonte sponsored me to New York uh, because... I wasn't a rich person, and that was the only way I could get a visa. So I ended up in New York with a student visa with my musician lover and at the Martha Graham School of Dance. So that was another miraculous thing that happened to me. I am a fortunate person. My life goes on from one fortunate thing to another. So I was there for five years, and then instead of going back to Australia, I drifted north, and we all know what's north of the United States. And I ended up, first of all, in Ottawa, where it seemed like Ottawa was waiting for me because there were lots of people, uh, like, bored in Ottawa. And you can get bored in Ottawa. We all know that. <laughs> and uh, so I really was able to do everything. I did experimental children's theater. I taught. I, I developed a thing called Gymerarium Theater, where we performed theater in gymnasiums. And I did marry there, and I did divorce there, and I had a baby there. And then came my next fortunate moment. I got a call from Concordia University, and uh, someone had recommended me to establish the dance degree program. Now, I have never applied for a job in my whole life. They've, people have always called me and said, do you want this job? <laughs> and this was just another fortunate thing that happened. So my daughter and I moved to Montreal, and there I was at Concordia for nearly 20 years. And designing the contemporary dance degree program, like designing a job and giving it to yourself, that is the best thing that could happen in the world. Hmm. So, and the department has gone on. You know, Michael Montanero inherited my job. And he was exactly the right person. Retirement was perfect for me. And um, the rest is my now my daily life. <laughs> Incredible. Do you have any insight into the, the inspiration for the creation of the department and why you got that invitation to come in? Well, somebody in the visual art department, um, the dean asked her if she knew anybody in Canada who could create a degree program. Now, he was very familiar with contemporary dance and art throughout Canada. And he, at that point, this was 1979, he decided that Canada had as good dancers as anywhere in the world, but he felt that the choreography was not the strong Canadian creative venue. So he wanted to create a department that dominated in creation and interpretation and choreography. Well, he asked this woman who had been my student 
uh, did she know anybody who would uh, would do that? And she said, there's one person in Canada. That's such a compliment. One person in Canada who could do it, and it was me. So that was pretty lucky for me. I don't know if you know, but all three of us, J.D. Allison and I, did graduate from the dance program oh, at did? Concordia. Oh, yes, we did. did. So we chose to go there because we were... Um, Called, I guess, by this creative, uh, by this creativity that the program offers, but by these these ways of discovering what's our own signature, I guess. What's how do we move, and how can dance make us move? I guess. Yes. So first off, thank you, I guess, for starting <laughs> this program that you know we are so fond of. Oh, um, thank you. And so the first few years, um, how was it to get dancers to join the program? How did it evolve? I guess. Well, again, it was it was a bit like a repeat of what happened in Ottawa. It seemed like there were a lot of people in Montreal at that time who would have liked to have been in a program like that if it existed. And something very interesting I discovered in Quebec was that there male dance in the village, the villages through Quebec. Dance for men is an accepted thing, whereas in Ontario, it's not an accepted thing. So I had a lot of male students who came in whose fathers had been the champion step dancers in their village or the fiddle player or whatever. So I don't think I had any trouble. I think just people came in as soon as the word went out. I did work in the theater department for... Uh, the first year because there was no dance department and they wanted to put me to work. So the word was going out in the community and there were other dance programs being established at that time. One was at UQAM and one was at the University of Montreal. But they were very different kinds of programs. And the dean said to me right from the beginning, do not get bigger, stay small, take 20 students and do not take any more because he really felt that it would call to people right across Canada to come to Montreal into the program and that you cannot deal with the creativity of the individual student if you have 70 students because you don't even know their names usually. So I think that was a really wise move on his part. But um, no, people came in And a lot of them, those people in the first uh, seven years, a lot of them came to my birthday party just recently, which was so nice. Right. But tell me about your experience. Ooh, my. Okay. Well, we, me and Alison were in the same uh, year. We met there in 2005. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, overall, it's been, it's been excellent. We had Michael Montanero as a teacher. Yeah. And he has, we were talking about him earlier, actually. He really has taught us to really open, open our minds, think outside yeah. the box not try to come with an idea that's going to blow everybody's minds no. away, you know, just try to keep it simple, keep it authentic and really research it and, and move it, I guess, Alison, is a good way to describe in what yeah. we've done for three years of intense improvisation and exploration. For sure. I think the the biggest takeaway I have and way of describing it to, to people who aren't familiar with the program is because of the creative process classes, which follow you through all three years, uh, especially coming into the program young, like I did, it was... Uh, kind of taught me a bit more about who I was and how I think and how I problem solve. And I think that's valuable on all sorts of levels, not just for creativity, but also, you know, for life. <laughs> yeah. 
Some parents used to come into my office looking gruff and say, well, what can my child do with this degree program, right? This was when we were at Loyola, not at the, in, during the first few years, but when we were at, at Loyola. And uh, I would you know, and what jobs can they get? Mm. So I'd say, well, I promise them no jobs, right? <laughs> but I'll tell you what your child shall, shall graduate with, a healthier body, more knowledge of themselves, and they will be strong and they will know how to work. Because I think dancers have to know how to work. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't know how to work, it just doesn't, it just do, it doesn't work. How much confidence did you have coming into it that you could teach someone creativity? And was that the goal at the beginning? Well, I had already taught creativity since 53, and that was 79. So... I had had a lot of experience with adults and children, and children, teaching children teaches you a great deal. And I had experimented, especially in Ottawa, I'd experimented with new methods of, of generating creativity in people. And it was interesting because most of my, the children I, I taught in Ottawa came from uh, parents who were in the political system. And a lot of them had moved from Saskatchewan when the the leftist party went out of power. So these children came from very enriched backgrounds, and eventually they taught their own classes. And I, I think I learned with them to understand when to move forward and when to move out. And I think this is one of the important things when you're teaching creativity. When do you support and when do you pull the supports out and let the student find out how to support themselves. And I think that's the same in parenting with, with your own children. Like when do you move in and take care of them and when do you move out and let them become strong as individuals? It's a very, it's a very delicate line that a creative teacher walks because you mustn't become involved in the process of the student either. Because then you become possessive, and then you start to fulfill your own creativity through your students, and that is also very bad. Teachers must have their own creative lives to free them up so that they, that possessiveness does not happen. It takes a lot of concentration, I tell you, to, you know, I may have looked very relaxed, but I was, my eyes were always roaming the studio and watching and learning about people, not about their private lives. I didn't want to know about their private lives because that would color how I would treat them with more compassion or less compassion. But just the life, the studio life of the student. I'll tell you, just you mentioned Michael Montanero. After I'd left the department for two years, um, I went back to the end of the year program and, um, and we went out for a beer. And I think, I, and I told him, I, I was so glad he inherited my job because he and I share some qualities. First of all, we have sense of humor and that is the most important thing in life for me. He's also over generous to students and he's also very perceptive, but he had one quality or one area of information, more likely, uh, that I didn't have. And I felt that it was time for me to retire from the department because the students needed a person like Montanero to take them into tech theater. Because I come from traditional theater 
black box traditional theater. And today, students need to create in all the contemporary medium choices that, that are now available. Maybe I was just too tired to educate myself into so that I could be what the students needed. But he had that. He came from tech theater, etc., etc. So I think I'm also fortunate that Michael um, inherited my job because it's, it's rolled on, as you said, as you described how he was for you. Uh, I think he was the right person. But I'd like to talk to Sylvie uh, about Sylvie Panay-Raymond for a while because uh, I taught Sylvie when she was 16 years old in Ottawa. She was my student. Then she went to Europe for a while, and I came to Montreal, and I was sitting in my office in the Victoria School, and I was trying to put my faculty together for the coming year. And I just needed one more person and this is another fortunate, I have so many fortunate moments. This was so fortunate because I felt there was somebody standing in the door of my office. So I looked like that. And it was Sylvie Panay-Raymond leaning against the door jam. And I just said to her, hey, Sylvie, want a job? <laughs> and she was my teacher. So she became my, my part-time faculty member. And then, of course, she became a full-time faculty person. And then and I was her chair, and she was my footstool, as I call it. And then she became the chair, and I became her footstool. And she and I have had a wonderful working relationship. Uh, you know, it's been... We won't even talk about how many years it's been now. But um, I think Sylvie Panay-Raymond is one of the most intelligent uh, people in the, in the dance community of Canada. I think she is so, so totally smart and demanding, very different from me, and very different from Michael, but also very important to the department. You brought up briefly your own creative life that has to coincide with your teaching. Can you tell us a bit about uh, about that? Well, it seems like my life is in three-thirds at this point because until I left um, Australia in 1960, my creative life as a choreographer and as a performer and as an interpreter was saturated. Well, of course, at the Graham School, the only creativity that's respected is the creativity of Martha Graham. And I didn't even tell anybody at the Graham School that I could improvise because improvisation was like a dirty word. It was things that nursery school children did, right, but not serious adults. Although it was the dance revolution in the 60s. There was Judson Church, etc., etc., that was going on. But at the Graham School, you didn't talk about improvising. And, um, and, but the creative spirit goes on. It has to come out. So during those years, I wrote poetry, and some was published, and that was kind of exciting. Well, then when I came to uh, Canada, to Ottawa, my creation desires were fulfilled by my students, and I did evolve works for them to perform that were very loosely structured. So I didn't feel during that time that my creativity paid a price for, for just teaching because I taught at Carleton University, Ottawa University, and then I had my own practice. So I was also doing a lot of teaching. But I never felt uh, deprived. 
Well, then when I came to um, to Montreal, again, I can be very fulfilled by other people's creativity. But again, I had a lot of input into the group works and the end-of-semester performance works we did. So that was fine with me. And also, you know, I was a, a single mother at that point, so my life was pretty crowded with things. Well, I had one sabbatical and went back to Australia and taught at the, the equivalent of the National Theatre School there and uh, and did some clowning. I had studied clowning in New York, did some clowning in my hometown, which was kind of fun. But then I got a second sabbatical, and I decided to take a two-year sabbatical because you can have a one-year a one year sabbatical on two-thirds of your salary or a two-year sabbatical on bag lady money. And I thought, oh, this will be a rehearsal for retirement. This will be my rehearsal for the major show down the road. So I took my two-year finished research in Montreal, and then I'd been accepted at the School for New Dance Development in Amsterdam. And when I was accepted there, because I, I think I was the oldest person they'd ever had, um, I must admit when they accepted me, I cried, because their program was the closest to the program that I designed at Concordia in the whole world, right? I knew that. And Amsterdam is such a wonderful city. It would, so I had a year there as, um, as a student. Uh, I did my own training in the morning, and I had six hours of improvisation every day in three classes with people from 13 countries of the world. Well, fortunate again, right? And also every Friday there, you could perform. So I got a lot of opportunities to perform all kinds of works in the basement, in the studios, whatever, whatever. And maybe this is sounds strangely fortunate, but while I was there, Concordia offered me early retirement. And I had all already suffered some stress, uh, some serious stress from running that department. And my daughter pleaded with me. She said, please retire, Mom, because you're either going to retire or die at your desk, right, trying to keep things going, 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 because budgets had been cut. And the first seven years when I was there, I had no budget at all. I used to pick up elas elastic bands on the street that the postman's dropped. But... Um, so I decided to retire, and to retire to my own creative life. I heard about a festival in, in a 3,000-year-old village in Turkey. I didn't even know where Turkey was, frankly. That's terrible. My geography is not very good. But it was physical theater and contemporary dance in this 3,000-year-old village. And uh, there was no budget. I was used to no budget. But people would go and live in this little hotel on the beach and prepare site-specific works in this 3,000-year-old village. And this village, it's called Assos, and it's south of Troy. Could you imagine being south of Troy in your life? I never thought that would happen. So I went to this festival, and um, it, w it was an amazing experience in, in lots of ways. But, um, you know, there are Australians all over the world. 
And uh, in the dining room, we used to table hop for meals. And somebody said to me, you know, where do you come from? I said, well, originally I come from Australia. Oh, there's other Australians here. There were like 40 of us. And I thought, oh, bugger. Everywhere I go, there are Australians. And sometimes Australians don't like me and sometimes I don't like them. You know, I've been gone a long time. Anyhow, eventually I thought, oh, I'll go and have breakfast with the Aussies, right? Well, I discovered these two totally amazing people, a guy and his partner, and they were there doing duet work. So, and I watched out of the corner of my eye the things that the man was creating in this center where all our equipment was and our props and everything. And he was creating the most amazing things. And I I said to myself, you know, I want to work with these people. But it's not my way to go and say to people, hey, I want to work with you, right? But one day Mary said to me, do you want to work with us? So I did my solo on some 2,500-year-old ruin rocks that had collapsed on a hillside. They did their duet, and then we did a trio work together in a dried-out riverbed. That was very exciting. Well, I'm, I'm curious because I get the impression that uh, these days you're, you're focused on solo work and one-woman shows, and I'm wondering if that is... Is that your, where your interest lies at the moment? Is it out of ease of access to yourself? Or what, what makes you go in that direction? Or is, am I not on target? Do you work you're, a lot with other you're people? You're pretty on target. Yeah. Well, it all comes out of that turkey experience because I came back to, um, oh, this is another long story. Are you ready for another long story? Oh, oh. yeah. Um, at one stage in my life, I bought a block of land on a Fiji island. Uh, because I couldn't afford a block of land in Australia. And uh, so I bought a block of land on a Fiji island. And one day I went to uh, a library when I was just visiting there and conned the librarian to let me take out a book to take to the beach with me. And it was not the kind of book you take to the beach because it was like a big book like that. And it was about um, amazing Australian writers since the beginning of um, white history in Australia. So I'm sitting on the beach, and I'm turning the pages, turning the pages, and I'm saying, oh, yes, I've read that, and I know that author. And, and then I turned the page, and there was this little tiny black-and-white photograph, like really like just a proof photograph of a woman. And it was, it was even out of focus, but she's somehow looking at me. So I look down, and what is her name? Her name is Eve Langley. So here's Elizabeth Langley sitting on a beach in Fiji looking at a photograph of Eve Langley. So I read about her. I read her story, which is like the most dramatic life story you can possibly imagine. And then I I read a piece of her writing. So I Xeroxed these couple of pages out of this book, and they'd been in my file for about 10 years. And you know when you go through your creative file and you go, garbage, 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 no, keep, garbage, go. Well, I kept this for 10 years. So I'm sitting in Montreal, and I think, I need to do a one-woman show, and I need a director. And I need to do a work about this woman. And the director I need is that man that I met in Turkey. So I phoned him up. And he's now been my director for the last 12 years. So I spent time in Montreal, time in Australia, working with this totally amazing man. And another fortunate thing about working with him, he's, he's not interested in the dancer in me. He's interested in the performer in me. 
And I started working with him when I was about 67. At 67, he made me the best performer I have ever been in my life. Now, what a gift. Because usually for dancers, like we're finished, like if we're 50, we're usually like retired. And here I am at 67 performing my one-woman show and really doing the best work. And I I, uh, premiered it in Melbourne. I performed it in Sydney at the Mardi Gras Theatre Festival, and I also performed it in Montreal. And I'm still working with him, and we're now working on another one-woman show. There's a little excerpt of uh, Light Years, the video, on your site, and in it you say something to the effect of the fear in, in creation is that you think that you know yourself so well and you have confidence in that yeah. and then something new comes out and you discover a new part of yourself I'm still discovering new parts of myself and I think I will do it until the day I croak right but I used to teach students and I'm sorry I wasn't there to teach you two guys that would have been so nice but I used to teach them to be watchful of the terror of creation because I would watch students and you, you, especially when you're young, you think, oh, I now know who I am, right? And then something comes out of you that you've never imagined. And it's very scary for people. And I've watched people literally cringe and like re- retreat from that lack of knowledge of the self. But the self never finishes. The self evolves until your last breath and I said to them, you know, when, when that terror happens when you're creating, just say to yourself, oh, this is the terror that Elizabeth told me about, and just go on and discover new things about yourself. Perhaps we can talk about uh, your work as a dramaturg as well. And is that an extension of your interest in teaching, or is that something apart? What is the relationship there between the two? Well, I just learned the word recently. <laughs> But I think what what I did at Concordia in the choreography classes was dramaturging. It's like hands off the creative process of the person. Assist them to be the best they can be and create what they want to create and express what they want to express. So I think all those near 20 years I was at Concordia, I was dramaturging. Because you must not interfere, you, and you must not help. You know, some students used to say to me, you know, this work didn't, uh, wasn't good, and you should have helped me make it good. I said, that's not my job. Also, failure is a very important part of learning, and sometimes you learn more from failure than you do from success. Because success is like you just kind of pat yourself and feel good. But in failure, you have to go and examine why this didn't work. So it's not the dramaturge's job, or I don't think, and lots of people would disagree with me and argue with me, but it's not my job to enter into the process. My job as a dramaturge is on product and to to perhaps ask questions of the creator that the creator is not asking themselves, but not to give them the answers, the answers they have to find themselves. I imagine that you pick and choose who you work with in this context, and and how do you do that? Do you look for the work that interests you or the artists that you get along with? 
Well, it, it, you have to have some kind of rapport because it's also a very sensitive uh, situation in the studio. Well, I'll talk. I'll talk about Tomomi. Uh, do you know Tomomi here? Tomomi Morimoto, yeah. I think. Uh, Denise Fujiwara in in Toronto uh, wanted me to mentor her in Montreal, and I said, "Well, uh, I sent her some emails, and I said uh, I, I want to agree to do this." Although Denise Fujiwara is so wise, uh, she must have known. But I said I won't agree to do this unless we meet, and we both decide that there's an opportunity for a working relationship. So we met at that wonderful chocolate place on Saint Denis that's closed. How terrible! But we met there, and over chocolates and hot chocolate and coffee and whatever, we talked for a couple of hours. And we didn't talk about her work or my work. We just talked about being people, right? Because it's the people. The artist is the extra coating, but it's the person that I have to work with. So after a lot of chocolate and a lot of caffeine buzz, we decided that we could go into the studio and at least test in the studio whether we could work together. And we did that. Well, uh, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful relationship. Uh, after she showed me her work in its early stages, I must admit I had to go away and think, how can I help this work? This woman, because um, you know I've done a lot of buto in my life, and I've worked with a lot of buto people, and I've been to a lot of buto festivals, and whatever. And her work is has a shadow of buto on it, but not really, because she comes from martial arts and she comes from classical ballet and whatever. But um, every day in the studio with her, I learn something. And I think that's also very important because, you know, people are of the impression that I have a huge ego. And uh, I do have one because to be a performer, you have to have one. But unless I'm, unless I'm teaching and learning, I am not teaching well. If I can't provoke you to do something that stretches my knowledge, I am not doing you the duty that I should be doing to you. Every day in the studio with her, I learn something and and uh, her partner or her husband uh, Matthew he said he told me after the process was over Tomomi always came home and said yes like that so I went home saying yes and she went home saying yes and it was a wonderful relationship um, but that was really chosen we chose one another and it's the same with uh, Sasha Zarif uh, the performer from Toronto. We talked a long time together and then we went into the studio and I watched him also wondering how I could help this man because he has such a, a particular way of expressing himself. But I found a way to do that too. But it's hands off, eyes on and hands off to be a good dramaturge, I think. Do you find the opportunity to give your opinion on work in terms of like going to to see a piece or do you try and stay neutral or do you have to because of over okay what am I trying to say sometimes I feel very oversaturated uh, with with information that I have about dance and about choreography yeah that to to form a simple opinion about a work and just say I liked it I didn't like it is very difficult because I see merits and I see faults and I see what could be 
etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes. Do you find yourself still able to judge work when it appropriate, even if not to express that to anyone, but just for yourself to have a taste? Well, as as a, a young professional, I can understand how you use performance to uh, develop your critical sense, and your personal taste. And those are two things that you have to keep separate, right? And and not let them all get mixed up together. And you'll be able to do that later on. It may be difficult now because the liking and, and the information that you have about your craft gets kind of confused. But... Whenever I go and sit in a theater or when I see somebody's work in, in the studio for the first time, I empty myself out. Do not be judgmental. I, I also used to teach judgmental is made up of two words, to judge and to be mental. Because you must n you n never judge people's work because you don't know where they're coming from, etc., etc., etc. And we're all in process. Once it has reached the stage and once it's kind of up there for the public and you're not invited in as part of the process but rather as a spectator to the work, do you find then that you can form opinions and have tastes? No, I go to that zone of emptiness. And the thing that I'm, I find most interesting is that I'm sitting in amongst the audience and I want to read the audience hmm. because that's also what what the work is communicating is in the environment in which I am sitting. And I think that's also part of my job. But I get very nervous. I get very tense. My shoulders are way up like that. Like, uh, because it's, it's easier to perform than it is to have worked with a performer and sit in the audience, right? And it's difficult. But uh, I once did an experimental work here. I'll have to, I'll have to tell you about a failure. I decided to, um, I was into four-minute works, and um, I decided on an experiment. I'm always experimenting, and uh, of course, that's always dangerous. And um, it was here at, at 3.03. I decided to, on some pieces of costume, but not on how it was going to come together or how I was going to be made up. And I decided not to look in the mirror before I went to perform and it, oh it, I learned so much that night but students in the audience were offered a free beer to go out with me afterwards and have a free beer and none of them stayed back that's how bad the work was no one wanted to face me even for a free beer so that is an incredible moment but it, it was bad and it didn't work at all it totally totally failed because I didn't realize that when when you put on your costume and, and your makeup and you go into a performance space, the audience doesn't know what you're going to do. You know that. But you know what you look like and you know what they're seeing, right? Even if it's just how you have dressed yourself. But in four minutes, I could not get out from underneath not knowing what I looked like and get across that empty space between me and the audience and connect with them. I didn't connect at all. But it was the most amazing experience. And I would never know what how important it is to look at yourself in the mirror before you go perform. So I learned a lot that day. And I learned a lot that students, can there can be a limit to free beer. <laughs> 
So you've you've worked in the Netherlands and Finland and Cuba and China and Australia and all over. Yes, I have. And Montreal is decidedly your home base. The three important cities in my life are Melbourne, Manhattan, and Montreal. These okay. are my first. And I do have a, a condo here, and I have lived here since 1979. And I love Montreal. There, you know, there are self-conscious cities and unselfconscious cities in the world. And Ottawa, I found, was self-conscious. Montreal is a non-self-conscious city. And the spirit here is so good. I think there are more people living in Montreal who love Montreal. And I think that's mm. how the spirit of a city is generated. And you can see, you can just walk down the street here. You can see how comfortable people are. In, and people wear all kinds of clothes and they do all kinds of things. And, you know, yesterday there's a man walking down center on with a snake around his neck. And this morning I saw a cross-dresser in my, my drugstore up here. That was the most beautiful cross-dresser I have ever seen in my life. Just absolutely beautiful. Now that's within two days on the plateau. But I, I may lose fans now, but if you live in Canada, I think you have to live in Montreal because, to me, it is the city. And if you live in Montreal, you have to live on the plateau because the plateau is the best of the best of the best. So a piece of my heart is always here. <laughs> Amazing. I'm, I'm with you there. I live in the plateau as well. I love it. Can you reflect, I know it's a big question, but in broad strokes, perhaps, the, the evolution of the dance community from when you first arrived in Montreal to now? Another thing that I'm usually doing, I'm usually going in, in one direction when a lot of people are going in the other direction. And when I came to Montreal, there was the big exodus. Um, a lot of the Jewish community left for, because of the what looked like the future political situation here, and a lot of French Canadians left. Matter of fact, we all know that there's a huge French Canadian community in Florida that left in the, the late 70s. So I'm coming in, they're going out. And um, and before, uh, except for the very exper experimenting small group of people in Quebec who were exploring the individual creative body, he had been dominated by classical ballet, uh, which the Catholic Church seems to accept. And then jazz, which is the rebels who don't want to do classical ballet. So there was a huge jazz and classical ballet community here. And then before the end of the 70s, a very small renegade group of people. But then uh, the degree program started to arrive. And I think politically at that point, or creatively, and politically, people were asking themselves, who am I? And I think that's what happened with the Exodus. I think people were asking themselves, mm, you know, am I a Quebecois or am I a French Canadian or am I an English Canadian or am I Jewish? And I can say that because I'm part Jewish. You know, and do I really want to live here? Because people were asking a lot of personal questions. And soon as people ask personal questions, you go to personal creativity. And I felt that that was a huge blossoming that happened here in those end of the 70s and the early 80s. It was 
Look, when I came here, I went to the Centaur Theatre to a contemporary dance festival there. And it was as though the festival had been designed for me. Oh, what an ego trip. Because every modern and contemporary dance group were performing there in this festival. And I saw everything that was going on in the city. It was so exciting. There were so many groups that had developed and were performing, all kinds of groups. So that was very exciting. And then, of course, when the university education of dancers happens, then you get an evolution in the community. And you'll find Canadian dancers from here and other parts of Canada in dance companies all over the world now. It's like Australian dancers are in companies. You you look at the names of foreign companies and you can see all the nationalities. So dance here has blossomed incredibly, I think, and has a particular personality. I think, you know, I've done a lot of work in Toronto and a Toronto dance community has a totally different creative voice to the Montreal voice. Totally, totally different. And in some cases, they don't understand one another. <laughs> Could we perhaps get a, a perspective on your other two, the other two cities that have stolen your heart and, uh, and for what reasons? Well, Melbourne is, of course, the city where I was born and, and where I danced until 1960. And, but at that stage, Sydney was the swinging um, city and Melbourne was the artistic city, but much more conservative. And as students, we would go to Sydney to do naughty things that we didn't want uh, relatives to know about because it was kind of the wild city where you went to be wild and anonymous and whatever. But now Melbourne has become, its pulse has definitely speeded up. It has also a lot of dance schools there and, um, and music is very strong there. It has the second largest Greek population of any city in the world after Athens. A huge mm-hmm. Italian population, huge, immense group, uh, Greek population, and also a spattering of all other nations. And also a lot of African people there, um, and also a lot of Asian people there. So the city has become very different from the city that I was brought up in. Because in the 50s, I was dating one of the two uh, colored people that were in Melbourne, and we could not be seen in the street together at that point because racism was so what it was. But uh, now it's like intermarriage. and So my city has grown up into the 21st century, and I'm very proud of it. And I'll tell you a little story um, that showed me how Australia had changed. There were I was sitting at a, at a, in a food court, and these two women came in, and they were obviously in Melbourne from the day from some country centre. They all had the same kind of block heel shoes, lace up, not too high, the same very heavy stockings, the same floral dresses. Uh, the, their hair had been set at the same hairdressers. They had little hats on, little plastic handbags. And they're walking towards me, and I'm looking at them thinking, now these are two women that have came, come from some some country town to, for a day in Melbourne. And one of them, and I'm going to use my Australian accent, my pure Australian accent now, and one of them turns to the other one and says, Mabel, yes, Flo, what kind of sushi are we going to have today? 
Well, that to me was the epitome of Australia grown up. That these women knew that sushi existed even was a miracle. And that they were going to, they'd had it before. And then they were going to choose from sushi, uh, so from uh, different kinds. Like it was just, it was a great moment for me. There are those moments that like tell you, it's like, it's like cognac. You know, life is like beer. And then there are moments that are like cognac. That was a cognac movement <laughs> moment for me. <laughs> Amazing. And that final M. Manhattan. Well, Manhattan changed my life. You know, I was totally ignorant of uh, any other culture. And um, I toured a lot with uh, Harry Belafonte Company. So, um, and I went in, at, in New York and in, um, in Hollywood at that level. Uh, so I met a lot of very interesting people. And also it was the time of um, the Black March on Washington, uh, the riots in Harlem, the assassination of Kennedy. Like in, in Australia as a student, you know, we, if we hadn't been fined for not voting, who would come off the beach or out of the dance studio in Australia to go and vote? Like, it was kind of a crazy idea. So I was politically totally ignorant and thrown into this terribly viable and, uh, and nervous situation. So that was very exciting for me. And, uh, and one of the dancers at the Martha Graham School I became friends with. And I was her first white friend and she was my first black friend. And that was, that was a whole education for me. And we stayed friends for many years until she sadly died. But it, every day in, in Manhattan was just like, a res, it was a huge resource of what I saw in, in, the, in the streets, you know, people eating my garbage. You know, that was something that as an Australian I could never have imagined. And, and the poverty and, and the anger and the riches and the, it, it was just like, I think everybody should go to New York once in their life. You know, you should go to Paris, you should go to Venice, you should go to Cuba, you should go to Manhattan, just once in your life, because they have something to teach you about the planet. But I don't want to live there anymore. Like five years was enough. I hear it's better now, but... I don't want to know that it's better or worse. But just, you know, the, I had lived on, on visual art in books. Well, you know, I went to New York to the, to the galleries and I saw it live. That, it was just totally, totally amazing. The museums there, the galleries, the concerts, the whatever, everything. Everything was just amazing. And Montreal, beautiful, beautiful Montreal. I will always love Montreal. I'd like to hear a bit about what the Montreal dance scene was like when you first got here, when the contemporary dance scene started emerging in Montreal. Like, what, what was that creative vibe like? Well, first of all, I have to apologize for my memory because, um, and this is for names, because uh, my daughter and I have worked out that I have taught six to 7,000 people um, in my life, and I tried to always remember their names. And uh, if I, told, if I in a, was teaching a children's class and I, 
I na- gave a child the wrong name, I would make sure that by the end of the class I had named every child with the wrong name so that it was democratic. <laughs> but I and and now, you know, I when you called me this morning on the phone, I had trouble remembering your name because the gray matter in my brain that has held all these names is tired. And um I don't want to talk about being senile or anything, but some people say to me, oh, you know, I'm a young person. I can't remember people's names. But if you have white hair like I do and you can't remember somebody's name, a chill goes through the room these days because they think you're coming apart at the seams. So I can't really name all the companies that I saw performed performing when I first came here because my memory doesn't recall names anymore. But there were so many people, companies and individual people here, who were expressing what they personally wanted to express. And it was just it was just rich. The whole community here was dance rich. And it had come out of studios, but it because it wasn't coming out of university programs because they weren't established. So it was literally coming out of teachers that were heading up studios that were developing dancers who were forming companies that were expressing what they wanted to express. And I and that did definitely came out of the political shift here that and I think it's still that political shift and that creativity is still happening here. And how many years is it now? I've lost count. The 80s, the 90s, the 10s. Yeah, it's over 30 years. I think it's still rolling here, and I think it is still rich. But that was like um, the birthdays, those, those late 70s, early 80s here. And when you go into having people graduating like you both did from university programs, that brings a, a different kind of dynamic I think there there are two kind of choreographers, if I may touch on this subject. There are choreographers who should be choreographers, and there are choreographers who should not be choreographers. And I think you have sat in theaters and seen works by both those kinds of people. Some Some people are under the impression that just because they have been an interpreter in choreographer's work, that that makes them teaches them how to be a choreographer. But I don't believe in that. Some, yes, some people have, have genius in their, genial qualities in their brain that let them do that. But a lot of people do not. There are periods in history where the territory of creation is so fresh that the, the non-educated choreographer has place. But then there's a part in history where people are graduating with choreographic knowledge, and that takes the whole of the community to another level. And also interpreters come out of uh, university education with different skills to interpret. Because when I was growing up, nobody taught me how to be an interpreter. But out of, out of university programs, you learn and, and you get to perform in so many people's choreography. So when you graduate, you have advanced information about how to interpret different people's works. So the whole community goes to another level altogether. But I think 
I, I was somewhere once at a conference, and there were two uh, people there debating that choreography can be taught and choreography can't be taught. And these were very knowledgeable people, and they both had great arguments. But I must admit, I think it can... I think the information, the ingredients for choreography can be taught. Choreographing cannot be taught, but the elements and the ingredient can be taught. And I think it just, the learning just makes alive uh, the potential and the possibilities in your brain. Would you agree with me on that? I wouldn't know how to, sorry, I don't know how to answer that. You don't know how to answer that? No. Well, maybe next year you'll be able to answer it. Maybe. Maybe it's Something too I need soon. to think about yes. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the most important thing is that the, Im- the, the ingredients does not dominate you when you go into the studio to create. That's got to be there by osmosis. Because the dominant thing in the studio is the creation of a movement in your body. And not thinking, how am I using space, and how am I using time, and what about my phrasing, and what about my pulse beat, etc., etc., because that's a killer. Well, I guess it's picking uh, picking one, at least, to work on, isn't it? Again, it's what, something that Michael said uh, many years ago that I said earlier. I would disagree with you. I would just throw you into the pool. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just throw you into the studio. But because experimenting and choreographing a theater p- piece is also a whole different thing. You know, and I have to admit that right now I'm working in duet <laughs> with with Peter Ryan and I have a, a rehearsal with him soon today. So this whole talk about me and my one-woman show has just been perhaps confused slightly because out of my birthday party, I danced with Peter Ryan at my birthday party for the first time. I've known him for 30 years. And after that, we decided to go into the studio together and work on a duet work. But when And we are experimenting because he comes from contact improvisation and I come from another base altogether. When you go into the studio to experiment, you can say, okay, I'm going to work on pulse beat today and I'm going to experiment. How can I slot in as many movements as possible over a pulse beat? And that's that's educating your body that is not creating. So when you set yourself a task, remember, that's education. But when you go into the studio with a creative idea in your mind, you must not bring the experimental in with it. You must just go with your creative spirit. Does that clear it up for you? That makes sense, yes. Yes. I didn't know I knew that. <laughs> you know, it's it's wonderful when when people, when you sit down and talk with people because they ask you questions and you didn't know that you knew the answer and you'd never thought about the answer, but then when you go in, you've got the answer back somewhere in your head, right? So thank you for asking me and not being able to answer my question. (laughs) You're welcome, then. It makes you want to look for words. (laughs) Yes, you just taught me something. (laughs) And you know how I like learning things. Indeed. (laughs) Matter of fact, I used to amuse the students sometimes because uh, they asked me, like, when did I decide that contemporary dance was uh, what my life was all about? And, um, And I said, I've never decided 
just things have come over the horizon that have just called my eye and I have just done them and that shocked them because in society today you're supposed to decide you know who you are and what you're going to do etc 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 but I also told them that one day I'm going to say I know what life is all about <laughs> and I'm going to croak because when I'm not learning and when, I, when my curiosity is fulfilled and when people don't interest me anymore, I'm out of here because nothing will sustain me anymore. But until then, until then, can we look forward to uh, seeing a presentation of something of yours soon? Well, I just called Monte M Michael Montenero to get some free studio space at Concordia, <laughs> which I think I deserve. I think you're entitled. And yeah. Peter Ryan and I were there yesterday, and we're here there today and tomorrow. And and Michael said, "What what do you want the studio for, Elizabeth?" And I said, "Well, Peter Ryan and I are working on this duet." And he said, hey, will you perform it at Concordia? You've got, he's going to put my name down, our names down already. So maybe you will see it. Brilliant. But it's down the road. We need to spend a lot of time together. Mm -hmm. Do you have other projects on the horizon? An another one-woman show that I'm working on with my director in Australia, so I'll go back there. But that's enough. Yes, fair. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having yes, you on the show. it's been a pleasure to be here. Yes, and I've you. learned some things. Wonderful. And so and have good, we. And yes. good luck to you, all of you, for everything you're doing. Thank you thank so you. much. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. Dirty Feet is produced and hosted by... Alison Burns. J.D. Papillon. Joanie Ferrand. And distributed by No More Radio. You can find more about our show at nomoradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. And you can find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Tune in next week for a whole new show. 